Yesterday we said Jesus is the light of the world, and the day before we said catwalk business is not <coughs> temple business. We looked at the contrast between the undertaking to which we are committed, which God has assigned us, and uh, what the world offers. And yesterday we acknowledged that Jesus didn't say he was one of the most significant, important, whatever. He is the light. And of course, that needs to be brought to bear on our own experience. And we try to do it by making clear that the virtuous things that we do do not thereby entitle us to some wondrous applause and affirmation. That is what got the devil in the beginning. He came to believe in his betterness. And that was his fall. Lord, deliver us from ever believing in our betterness. I told you how good I have always been. My mother and older sister said I was good before I knew myself. Then I ask you, what's the difference between that kind of thinking and, Lord, I thank you that I am not like other people are swindlers, adulterers, or this publican? Well, today, instead of talking about one, we will talk about two, but maybe it will bring us to one. What's our aim? To advocate for polarizing theology. Say that, everybody. The aim is to advocate for polarizing theology. You know what polarizing is. You know, you, you, you don't believe in the middle of the road. You grab onto something and, and uh, you start hammering it, and everybody else who wants to be balanced and reasonable and uh, deal, deal with equanimity and so on gets upset at you. There's, you know, some kind of polemic that she's, well, today's goal is polarizing theology, so all the balanced even-minded, dispassionate saints in the congregation had better start praying hard. And what's the reason? What's our reason? Yeah, I'm tired of limping. Scripture reading, let's read it together. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For him who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Finally, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this that overcomes the world. Oh God, give us faith. Faith that overcomes the visible. Faith that is the master of prevailing ideology and material circumstance. Faith 
that comes from you and guarantees the victory. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings 18, 17. And it came about when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Ahab is in attack mode. Elijah is the troublemaker. If it hadn't been for Elijah, the whole countryside would be green and every Israelite would be seated under and plucking grapes from his own vine and shaking down figs from her own fig tree. If it hadn't been for Elijah, the land would be cut with rivers and brooks that sang, and all the Esau's of the land would be bagging big game. But instead of that, the earth and its carcasses rot, and Obadiah is out hunting, not for big game, but for water, before the last horses collapse and Ahab has to walk to work. Elijah is the troublemaker. Yahweh is my God, is his name, and that is the trouble. The trouble is people walking around with God's name written in their forehead. The trouble is people unafraid to call sin by its right name. The trouble is people ready to stand for the right, though the heavens fall. To stand for the right before the king and his court and his concert and her pagan priest father and all the Canaanite imports into the land that God had commissioned his people to clean up and occupy. Drive out the Canaanites, he said. Drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Parasites and all. Drive them out. And if they would diligently obey him, he would overflow their barns and their storerooms. Deuteronomy 28, if not, Numbers 33, 55, those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks. You know, I see the word pricks and I say, you know, prick is fine, but pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and they shall trouble you in the land in which you live. Ahab has a better way. It's more sociable. Be nice to the people. Win their confidence and get them to marry you. Then bid them follow you. You know the language, don't you? Win their confidence. Follow you to your church, your country, I mean, um, to set up standards they are comfortable with and faith that they can live by. Faith in a God who gave them their reign. He was the weather god, the god who gave them their grain. Dagan means grain, and he was the son of Dagan. Dagan. And the god who had received authority from the head of the pantheon to rule, Jezebel's Baal was son of the ancient El. 
If Baal wasn't three in one, at least he could multitask. He could do three things at a time. And besides that, he had a divine father, El. How did they get rain and grain from their Baal god? There was a process. And his devotees were actively involved in the process. You worshipped at the high places. Worship was a very practical and highly symbolic matter. Male and female engaged as best they could on a human plane in what they understood their God to do when he sent rain. As far as they could tell, Baal was inseminating the earth so it could produce. So they did that in the high places. They were cooperating with the deity. What was there about that to be mad about? But Elijah was mad. Elijah, you see, didn't believe in Baal. He believed in Yahweh. Okay, fine, Elijah. You keep your Yahweh and leave us our Baal. To each her own. What's the trouble with that? Well, this is Elijah's understanding of the trouble with that. Your seven-word summary, everybody together. If Yahweh is the God, follow him. Again, if Yahweh is the God, follow him. The trouble with Baal, as far as Elijah is concerned, is that Baal and Yahweh both make the same claim. Baal claims that every bird and bee and flower and tree and mountain and sea and coffee, postum and tea and you and me come from Baal. Or, you know, today we don't say Baal, we say evolution. Yahweh and I claim that in six days, I being Elijah, or me, or you, God grant. In six days, the Lord Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested. The Sabbath day blessed, sanctified it, and gave it to us in perpetuity as a testimony to his creative authority. Both of those cannot be right. And I'm tired of limping. 1 Kings 18, 21. And Elijah came near to all the people. 1 Kings 18, 21. Elijah came near. This morning, they announced the scripture reading, and it was one verse, Luke 10, 42. And I reached for my Bible, and uh, the brother started reading, and I thought, bless his heart, I need to get into the teacher mode. I taught my students for about 20 years between Montemorelos and Andrews, the guys who were going to lead the worship services. And I explained to them that when you cite the scripture reading, you cite it again. And you say chapter 18. It comes after chapter 17 and before chapter 19. Chapter 18, sandwiched between 17 and 19. Verse 21. Why? Because you want the people to read their Bibles. If you say the scripture reading is Luke 18.36 and it reads thus, by the time I pick my Bible up, put my glasses on, turn the pages, you'll be finished reading. So 
1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah came near. Have you come near? Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. For the people did not answer him a word. Do you think there's any reason why the people wouldn't answer? What would they say? Elijah had asked them a pretty difficult question. What was Elijah's question? How long? What do you expect the people to answer? Well, we intend to be here for the next two days. We're leaving on Sunday to go back to Wildwood and Kibidula. Uh, it was nice to be at OCI. Did he think they were attending an OCI retreat? How long? What kind of question is that? Well, we'll be here for the next two weeks. We come here every year. Colorado is a beautiful place to spend vacation. So we're going to be here what kind of question is that? What were they supposed to say? He put them on the spot, and the last thing in life that they could stand was being put on the spot. Their very status quo, their very sense of equilibrium depended on not standing for anything specific. Notice Elijah's wording. How long are you going to be hesitating like this? The word for hesitate is a rather astonishing word. My wife tells me, and she's not here, so I don't have to do what she says, but at least I can acknowledge it, that I should use a little Hebrew now and then because the people like that. I try to avoid doing that. And I'm not going to do it today either. <laughs> yeah, since she's not here. The noun form of this astonishing root makes its appearance on the lips of God. In a message to Moses for all God's people. God is talking about getting out of Egypt. He's going to get you out of Egypt. And this is going to be the climactic moment. And everybody's to prepare for it by eating. They are beginning a new life. This is the beginning of their year. This is going to be their first month. On the tenth day of this month, everybody is to select a lamb. Everybody depending on family size, will either get their own lamb or get a lamb to share with a smaller family that doesn't have enough. We don't want anybody left out because they don't have enough, but we don't want extravagance and waste either because what you don't eat, you're going to have to burn. You're not allowed to put it in the refrigerator to make <laughs> lamb sandwiches the day after tomorrow. So they're choosing a flawless young male sheep or goat, and they're keeping it for four days. Then on the 14th day, they will kill it at twilight. Sprinkle some of the blood on the entranceway. Roast the flesh. Eat it with bitter herbs that same night. They are to eat as if they're going somewhere. Get dressed, put on your hat, grab your walker, and hold it with one hand. Eat the lamb and the bitter herbs with the other hand, and eat quickly. Yeah, it does say grab your walker. I didn't make that up. Well, grab your walking stick, it says. <laughs> what is this all about? Well, it says grab your staff. You know, staff is a piece of stick. We don't need so much wood anymore. We have all kinds of replacements for wood, or else there would be no trees left. So, 
Exodus 12, 11. This is where the noun appears for the first time on the lips of God. In other words, this thing, whatever it is, is a God name. It must mean something. And what is its name? Exodus 12, 11, last part. What is its name? Verse 11, as you know, comes after verse 10. Exodus 12, 11, last part after the first and second part. What is its name? Tell me, Bill. Go ahead. It is the Lord's Passover. Passover is about going somewhere with the Lord and behaving as though you're going somewhere. Passover is about going somewhere because the Lord has made the way. You have not seen it yet, but it's there. And when it does open up, you are ready to move. Passover is about doing what God says. No ifs, ands, or buts. Passover is for everybody, and everybody is to make sure everybody is included. Nobody is to be left out because they are poor or to gorge because they have too much class and status distinction. Have no place. Share it with your neighbor if she needs and you have enough. And make Sure, the blood is all over the entranceway, on the top, on the left, on the right. And stay inside the door. Bloody up the door and stay inside. Why? 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 Why the participation and the sharing and the dressing up and the hurrying up and the bloodying up and the staying inside. Why? Moses wants to know because God answers him in the next verse. God is coming through. I will read it for you. I will go through the land of Egypt and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And the blood on the doorpost will tell me they are safe. You don't want to go outside and be mistaken by God for one of the gods of Egypt. I want to register something here, and I want to do it sensitively, which is absolutely not my gift. So pray for me right now as I try to say it. Passover is not a human invention. Passover was not intended to be seen as a thing that emerged out of the hoary past and survived civilization to become established as part of some people's tradition. That was not the intention. Passover came to be called Passover because the Lord named it so. And the proper identification is the Lord's Passover. Did I get that right? Okay, nobody quarreling. Did, did I get it right? Okay, thank you. Passover is not designed, conceived of, instituted, originated by God for American people. Because it is an American thing. 
or for Russian people because it is a Russian thing or for Middle Eastern or Eastern European or any other people. Passover is the Lord's thing. And Passover is a faith thing. You are acting on something you have not seen and something that has seemed impossible for 430 years. But you behave as though it is going to happen now. And it's a life or death thing. You step outside that door, daddy or firstborn, and no matter how much blood you left behind you, you left it behind you. And you're in trouble. Daddy and firstborn symbolize seed and generations. Everybody. God was always trying to make clear that it's only through him that anything is possible, including conception. That's what circumcision is all about. Life and the means of life are divinely established. Existence is to be wholly lived for God. And that's what swearing was about too. You read Abraham, you read Jacob, put thou thy hand under my thigh, it's obscene to you. But it's a statement about life. Whatever you say now is a matter of life and God or death and evil. In fact, you didn't even have to swear for it to be a matter of eternity. You remember when Isaac gave the birthright to Jacob? How did he come to give it to him? Because Jacob lied through his teeth. And then Esau came in and Isaac said, the birthright is gone. What had he done? Had he sworn? To speak the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Was this a grand jury investigation? And they found something on him and they nailed him to the wall. Isaac did not need a grand jury investigation. He knew what he had said. And even if he had been lied to, to get him to say it, he had done said it. Word used to mean something back there. My word is my integrity. Let's get back to Passover. Talking about words. The noun appears. God speaks it. Then he uses the verb to say what he will do. And the verb of God passing through is the verb Elijah uses in 1 Kings 18.21. To curse the vacillation and pusillanimity of Israel at the time of Ahab. I told you it's an astonishing word. So if God can do it, why is Israel blighted for doing it? Why can't Israel do what God is into. Why? Well, for one thing, God knows what he is doing. And Israel has no clue what they will do. For one thing, God is, or another thing, God is going somewhere. Israel isn't going Anywhere, for another thing, God is going to destroy. Is that what Israel wants? Israel is lame and limping. A form of this same root gives us the word lame, and in a context that shows how God feels about Israel engaged in it right now, tell Aaron that none of his descendants who is lame is to come working and presenting and officiating at my altar. They have a defect. 
That's discrimination. Yes, I know. God knows too. But he's got to find some way. Anything he uses, that's human. is going to be defective. But he's trying to say Jesus is perfect. And we don't want any flawed representation that claims to be Jesus. We can read the Bible and find all its flaws if we want to, about patriarchy and slavery and ethnic cleansing. Or we can read the Bible and discover that we are one lame, limping mess. And Jesus can clean up our mess and give us feet that stand up straight and tall. The range of meaning of the word we're looking at stretches from leaping to limping. And whether Israel is jumping or dragging, they aren't going anywhere. They are here. And then they are there. And then they are here again. They are limping between two opinions. Between going and coming. Between leaving and staying. Between Egypt and Canaan. Between life and death. And they cannot say, how long they will be like this. Postmodernism has given wonderful philosophical validity to limping between opinions. No more any grand dictating controlling narratives. We're done with imperialism. Everybody now has her own story or variety of stories for varieties of circumstances and a way to believe in every one of them. No more need for labeling. Even the philosophy itself doesn't have a name. Postmodernism. You, you thought postmodernism was a name. What does postmodern mean? Postmodern means we are the people who came after the people who were before us. You see, when you have a non name like that, nobody's offended. And postmodernism does not. Offend. Everything in the previous period was going to be measured and evaluated and cut and probed and heated and melted and numbered and disemboweled and summarized in seven words. And then we discovered that it could be offensive because some of our labels categorized something or person in a way that didn't please him or her. So postmodernism makes sure nobody is offended. And Christian postmodernism is called theistic evolution. It doesn't offend anybody and it, it, it. Science shows us how things happen and religion tells us God does them. I always say I have no quarrel with the real atheist. Richard Lewontin helps me explain why. Lewontin is higher up the food chain than people like Stephen Jay Gould. You've heard a lot about Stephen Jay Gould because he writes or wrote a lot. He's dead now. Lewontin is still alive. And Lewontin is a bigger evolutionary biologist than Stephen Jay Gould. So he should know. So this is what Lewontin says. Our willingness to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to an understanding of the real struggle between... I think I'm going to quickly. I'm going to start this again. Our willingness 
to accept scientific claims that are against common sense is the key to understanding the real struggle between science and the supernatural. We take the side of science in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises. I left a bit out, it's the same thing. It's in spite of its, you know, okay, I'll just read the whole thing. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of life and health, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated, just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Now here's the punchline coming up. It's not there. I have it here. I didn't put everything on the screen. That's the next guy. Here's the punchline coming up. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept the material explanation of the phenomenal world. On the contrary, we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Let me demonstrate this. We are going to look for God, but before we look for God, we have to clean the place out, rip up the carpets and tear out the, the, the stuffing from all the cushions and everything and make sure that God is nowhere here and then we hermetically seal the place and then we start searching for God. And we rip up the carpets and pull the stuffing out of all the cushions and look, and we announce, we have not found God anywhere. And people are persuaded. The quotation says, we have an a priori adherence to material causes, and so we create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. Punchline. Materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. How are the parameters of science established? Materialistically. And if you want to prove the supernatural by means of the paradigm we have set up, you are welcome. Evolution is a theory that life is meaningless. I'm taking my time today and somebody else's as well because somebody said don't worry about the time. Somebody else told me they're always taking your time. Yesterday I finished by five and the day before by five. I can tell you beforehand I'm not going to finish by five today. Those of you who are committed to principles should leave at this point because if you stay it will somehow implicitly sanction his violations of principles. Evolution is a theory that life is meaningless without any original purpose and without any mind to have given it purpose and direction. So evolution uses careful intelligence and rigorous logic to prove that nothing makes sense. And they want you to credit their intelligence for proving that life and intelligence are accidental things. And the Christian, 
Yes, yes, says the Christian. Your observations about how life proceeds are accurate. But no, no, no. It is not an accident. God does it. Yes, yes. There is evidence of chaos from the very start. But no, no, no. It is not really chaos. That is the work of our God of love. If there's anybody who expresses the height and depth of postmodernism's all-embracingly wondrous absurdity, it is theistic evolution. Halting, vacillating, limping between two opinions. We need to believe in God because we are, well, well believers. But we need to make sure people know we validate Science, or else people will laugh at us. Well, here's the next quotation that you saw before you should have. The scholars are laughing you to scorn anyway. Christopher Hitchens, God is not great. How religion poisons everything. Those who have yielded, not without a struggle, to the overwhelming evidence of evolution are now trying to award themselves a medal for their own acceptance of defeat. The very magnificence and variety of the process they now wish to say argues for a directing and originating mind. In this way, they choose to make a fumbling fool of their pretended God and make him out to be a tinkerer, an approximator, and a blunderer who took eons of time to fashion a few serviceable figures and heaped up a junkyard of scrap and failure. Meanwhile, have they no more respect for the deity than that? So while the Christians are trying to impress the scholars that we are good scholars, but we believe in God. The scholars are mocking them to scorn. What kind of God is that you believe in? 1 Kings 18.21 And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal... Follow him, but the people did not answer him a word. I'm tired of limping, sisters and brothers. It's time to stand up straight and tall, whether you've got good legs or any or not. You can take a stand for God and Elijah without legs and repudiate atheistic infiltration into the ranks of God's creation, celebrating new earth, anticipating remnant people. If Yahweh, says Elijah, is the God, follow him. And that's your seven-word summary. Notice how pointed Elijah's theology is. Positive, pointed, powerful, and polarizing. Elijah thinks and speaks of deity with a definite article. Who else does? We say God. Elijah says, if Yahweh is the God, I looked up 20 versions in four different languages, and I found four of them that acknowledge Elijah's definite article. Because what Elijah says is intolerably discriminating, polarizing, and exclusionary. If Yahweh is the God, then none of the rest of them is. 
If Yahweh is the God, the rest of them are something else that is not God. If Yahweh is a God, then you can have others. Well, Elijah says, the Israel must know whatever else they wish to give their allegiance to, that it is not worth worshiping. They must know that the time has come to stop the charade, time to quit the farce, time to abandon the vacillation and multiple opinions, time to stop limping. OCI and friends, there are people all around you living with systematized explanations about how the universe began, about how you got here, about how to survive and progress and advance and succeed. And their explanations are based on generations of genius, continuously repeated observation, vast resource investment, and their theories run the world. Society's intelligentsia subscribe to them, just like with Elijah. Israel's established authorities, its royal upper crust, the 1%, and the masses by the numbers accepted and bowed to the prevailing theory. People lived and prospered or starved to death according to Baalist theories on why drought happened, where rain came from, and the mechanism for causing it, sexual orgies in the high places. The difference between Israel's Baalists and today's godless scientists is perhaps little more than that back in Elijah's time, they did call it a religion. But today on the mountain, Elijah will confound the Baalists with a test outside the scope of their laboratories because he knows there is nothing outside the scope of Yahweh's capacity and responsibility. How about you? Do you know of a test that is outside the scope of science's laboratories? I know you believe that God is omnipotent. I know you believe, unlike Martha, thank you, Alistair, that Jesus does care. But do you know of a test that is outside the scope of science's laboratories? Is it available to you? And are you ready to use it? In Heavenly Places, page 51, faith in Christ is not the work of nature. Naomi told me I don't have to put these on the screen because all of you have the spirit of prophecy on your cell phones. So when I say in Heavenly Places, page 51, you can do two clicks and find it. I hope it doesn't take three, four, five, or half a dozen clicks because while you are clicking, we are moving along. and Then you will be a few clicks behind. Faith in Christ is not the work of nature, but the work of God on human minds. This is an astonishing line. It sets the issue of faith right in the context of Canaanite nature religion and today's non-religion that worships nature. Faith in Christ is not the work of nature. It is the work of God on human minds, wrought in the very soul by the Holy Spirit who reveals Christ as Christ revealed the Father. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence 
of things not seen, with its justifying, sanctifying power, it is above what men call science. It is the science of eternal realities. Human science is often deceptive and misleading, but this heavenly science never misleads. It is so simple that a child may understand it, and yet the most learned men cannot explain it. It is unexplainable and immeasurable beyond all human expression. It is faith. Some friend of OCI, somebody affiliated with OCI, some administrator of one of OCI's enterprises, some financier, some potential donor is thinking about Elijah and figuring out God is going to do that for us. Let them call on the name of Baal and we will call on Yahweh and the God who answers by fire, he is the God. We know that Baal is nothing. He cannot convert, he cannot forgive, he cannot redeem. He's nothing but the theory based on people's efforts to explain what they see. He is nothing. Yahweh can send fire, fire to consume sacrifices, spiritual fire to purge people's souls. Yahweh can forgive and convert and redeem. He's done it for me. Send the fire, Lord. And nothing happens. When nothing happened, Elijah told the prophets of Baal to pray some more. Send the fire, Lord! Send! And nothing happens. People get sick. Students stop applying. Your registration goes down. People leave. Fewer people register for your LE and LC programs. Your enterprise begins to drown in red ink. Send the fire, Lord. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory. Our faith. Are you testing by human methods? Working with human calculations? This is what we were talking about this morning, Bill. Depending on human science? Or are you working with God? Are you willing to continue because you know, regardless of current material evidence, that the same God who in six days made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them, the same God who gave you the Sabbath which you keep though you cannot demonstrate 
that he made the world in six days. The same God who brought Israel out of Egypt and told them to behave as though it is happening when they had no evidence. The same God who performed the miracle of sending the fire for Elijah and who converted you from the error of your ways. Are you willing to continue because you know he commissioned you? And it looks like the sky is falling. The buildings are decrepit. We can't pay for maintenance. Nobody else is coming. But God told me to do this. And I know he told me to do this. Are you willing to continue? Is Yahweh your God indeed? If Yahweh is the God... Follow him. The fire he sends doesn't have to be visible. It is the fire of passion in your soul and the fire of the spirit. And the world will not see it because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And the world will not understand. Maybe your spouse doesn't get it. But you get it because Yahweh is the God. Eat the Passover. Behave as though it is going to happen. Because Yahweh said it would. If Yahweh is the God, follow him. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.